Welcome to part five of a multi-week study called A Bible Prophecy Timeline. It's being released as a video as well as an audio on my podcast feed, all available through BibleProphecyTalk.com. Today's episode is entitled Palatial Tense. Palatial Tense is an event that I've placed on the timeline just after the Wars of the Antichrist and just before the Abomination of Desolation at the Midpoint. The term palatial tense comes from the last verse in Daniel 11. For context, I'll start from verse 44 and continue through Daniel 12:1. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Palatial tents, or some versions translate it as royal tents or tabernacles of his palace, it seems to amount to the same thing, though, which is that after he defeats Egypt and Assyria and whoever this is from the east and the north, he sets up a camp just outside of Jerusalem. This setting up of the palatial tent seems to be within the flow of the narrative of the wars. In other words, I think we're supposed to understand that the multiple tents being set up are for his army and or for those following in his train, as verse 43 has it. It says here in the ESV that these tents are pitched between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, though some translations say things like between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, which actually does change things. So either it's just outside Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, but obviously it's very close to Jerusalem. According, I think, to the narrative flow, the Antichrist is done conquering here. He has proven his might in battle. He has all the wealth of Egypt in his possession. The palatial tense is a picture of a victorious Antichrist, and I think we're supposed to understand it as such because of the next line, which says, yet he will come to his end with none to help him. This could mean that, yes, the Antichrist will have all these successes and take over pretty much the entire Middle East, but it's okay because he will come to his end with none to help him. Sort of like a consolation, like a fast forward statement. I would argue that we have multiple good reasons to think something more is meant here. We talked last time about the connection of Daniel 12.1 and how the chapter break between 11.45 and 12.1 is a bit confusing considering it has clear connecting language with the phrase at that time. I talked about how what it says will happen at that time is that shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. And how that phrase was essentially what Jesus quoted in the Olivet Discourse to refer to the time just after the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sits in the temple and declares himself to be God at the midpoint of the seven-year period. So the idea I'm going to try to prove here is that when it says the Antichrist comes to his end with none to help him in 1145, it's referencing the death and resurrection of the Antichrist, which by my count is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. Twice it's described as the reason the earth dwellers worship the Antichrist. And since we know that he does not demand worship until after the midpoint, it's yet another reason to justify this timing. I'll try to convince you more of the fact of the resurrection of the Antichrist next time, but today I just want to deal with the timing of the resurrection, which again I think is just after the victories and just before the midpoint. But to do that, I first need to make sure that you know that Daniel 12.1 is talking about the midpoint. We have this verse that Jesus quotes about the midpoint when he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. 
but we also have this reference to Michael the Archangel standing up. I'll deal with this in detail later, but I wanted to quickly point out that Michael the Archangel has a strong link to the midpoint of the seven-year period, which we can see in Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even until death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe unto you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and a half a time. This war with Michael takes place at the midpoint. The three and a half year period is mentioned or alluded to three times in Revelation 12, and it's about the time when Satan is cast down to earth. This means that Michael throws Satan down at the midpoint. So it's no surprise that Michael is being mentioned here in conjunction with a phrase that is also unambiguously about the midpoint. I'll come back to what Michael is doing here, but the point is that if we need to connect Daniel 11.45 to Daniel 12.1 because of the at that time phrase, and we know that Daniel 12.1 is about the midpoint, it forces us to make some kind of interpretation about timing here. It could be that when it says at that time, it's wanting the reader to go all the way back to verse 40, where it starts out the wars section with another important timing phrase, at the time of the end, as in, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. I think this is the absolute earliest point that Daniel 12 ones at that time could be referring to. In which case, it would necessitate the interpretation that the midpoint begins with the wars of the Antichrist, that is, when Egypt attacks the Antichrist. This is difficult for me to accept, partially because it would mean that the first few years after the midpoint, the Antichrist is still consolidating power, which runs against the idea that he has authority over every tribe and nation for three and a half years, i.e. starting at the midpoint. The other option for at that time is simply the preceding verse. In this case, just after the Antichrist sets up his palace tents in Jerusalem and comes to his end. At that time, Michael stands up and an unparalleled persecution begins. So how can the midpoint of the seven-year period be after the Antichrist comes to his end? I think it's because he either seems to or really does resurrect from the dead at this point. It's this resurrection that precedes him declaring himself to be God and demanding worship. And you have to admit, that would be a pretty good time to declare yourself to be God and demand worship right after you seem to rise from the dead. I think we can see even more evidence for this theory when we dig a little deeper on the concept of Michael the Archangel, quote, standing up in Daniel 12.1 because it will lead us down a road that will, I think, prove that the resurrection of the Antichrist happens just before the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. And here I'm going to play an old audio of me reading my commentary on Daniel on this point. Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Michael, the archangel, as he is called in Jude 9, seems to be in view here. God has apparently assigned Michael to, quote, watch over Israel. 
Michael is an angel with great power. In fact, he seems to be put opposite of Satan in a fight in a number of instances in Scripture, at least one of which he obviously wins, Revelation 12:7 through 9 and Jude 1, 9. David Guzik makes the remark that some think that God and Satan are opposites, but a much more theologically correct view would be saying that Michael the archangel and Satan are opposites. So what does Michael, quote, standing up have to do with the Great Tribulation? Many see this verse as a reference to Michael standing up in the sense of getting ready to defend Israel during the, quote, time of trouble that immediately follows this phrase. But this is a problematic interpretation. One reason is because if that is his mission, to protect them, then he fails at it. This time is linked to the same period described by Jesus in Matthew 24:15 through 15-22. If this is the case, then the very moment that Michael tries to protect them, he loses more of them than ever before in history. Such a conclusion is unlikely to be true. Contextually, it would appear much more likely that Michael's standing up is what allows the time of trouble to begin. Colin Nickel, in his paper, Michael, the Restrainer Removed, points out that the term used here for, quote, standing up, was understood by Jewish commentators like Rashi to mean, quote, to stand still, or to move aside to allow the time of trouble to happen to the Jewish people. Nickel points out that the Hebrew term for stand is very often used in scripture to refer to inaction, or a direct contrast to action, i.e. to stand still, Joshua 10.13, Habakkuk 3.11, 1 Samuel 9.27, 2 Samuel 2.28, Nahum 2.9, and 2 Kings 4.6, or to refer to inactivity, 2 Chronicles 20.17, or to describe the cessation of an action, 2 Kings 13.18, Genesis 29.35 and 39, Joshua 1.15, or to mean stand silent, as in Job 32.16. He also points out that the term by the time of the Apostle Paul was frequently used in a figurative sense, meaning to disappear or to pass away. These and a great many other things he details in his paper lead him to the view that Michael is the restrainer of 2 Thessalonians 2. This would of course make a huge amount of sense, as in that passage we see that the abomination of desolation is being held back only by the restrainer ceasing to restrain, which is exactly what we would have here. The Great Tribulation, which begins at the Abomination of Desolation, is here said to be contingent upon the inaction of Michael. It is almost a certain conclusion that this passage is where Paul gets this idea, after of course being directed by the Lord to study the same passage in Matthew 24:15. So we already have Michael being mentioned in connection with Great Tribulation language in Daniel 12:1, and we've seen that Michael is associated with the last three and a half year period in Revelation 12. But if we understand that Michael is the restrainer of 2 Thessalonians 2, we have one more link to the midpoint, as well as a key bit of evidence regarding the resurrection of the Antichrist at that time. I need to read this entire section in 2 Thessalonians 2, because Paul's response to the Thessalonians, who thought that they had missed the rapture and were in the day of the Lord's wrath, were consoled by Paul by his reminding them that they had not seen the abomination of desolation yet. And since the day of the Lord is not until some unknown time after the abomination of desolation, they could not possibly be in the day of the Lord. Paul points to the abomination event because it is the central sign Jesus told his disciples to watch for when they asked him about the signs of his coming, but also because it's such a blatantly obvious thing that would be nearly impossible to miss. Jesus himself says, when you see it, flee from it. Let's read the passage. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God? Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The two takeaways for our purposes here is that Paul calls the abomination of desolation at the midpoint the revelation of the man of sin, which of course makes sense in light of Jesus' warnings about it. It's only after the abomination that people will know for sure that the Antichrist is the Antichrist, because that's what Jesus told us to watch for and to flee from when we see it. The other takeaway is that he equates this event at the midpoint with the restrainer being removed, which again makes logical sense. If the Antichrist gets authority to kill the saints for three and a half years, and as we know, the greatest persecution of all time begins immediately after the midpoint, then of course that is when the restrainer is removed, at the midpoint. Next time I'll talk a lot more about the Antichrist's apparent resurrection and the abomination event, but I'm going to argue that Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is following Jesus' instruction to read Daniel to know more about the abomination event when Jesus says, let the reader understand the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, etc. So Paul has gone back and has read Daniel 12.1 and understands the Michael connection, which is why he's talking about the restrainer here and, act, and telling people that, hey, you remember when I taught you about all this stuff in connection with the midpoint? So he talks about the midpoint. He talks about the man standing in the holy place, declaring himself to be God. And it's that context when he talks about the strong delusion that God sends so that people will believe the lie. That kind of comes out of nowhere if you think about it. What is the strong delusion? I know everybody has a theory or two about it, but I think in context, knowing everything that we've known here, that you can actually find this from the context. It's talking about the resurrection of the Antichrist. That is the strong delusion so that people will believe the lie. And as I said earlier, there are at least two places in Revelation where it says that the reason that people worship the Antichrist is because he had a mortal wound that was healed. That is their reason. That is the reason that they worship him. So, so I believe that is the connection that we need. All right, that's it for me this week. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com for the podcast and the videos and basically anything like that. You can go to BibleProphecyText.com to read all the books for free online. And you can email me at ChrisWhite79 at ProtonMail.com with your questions. I can't guarantee that I will answer, but I certainly read all of them that come in.